And now, The Mentors Radio, one of the most popular and unique shows on the air today. Here each week, remarkable CEOs and leaders, including host Tom Laurie and Dan Hesse, and their guests will mentor you, challenging your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their ethical leadership and advice, and for helping others succeed throughout their careers, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Learn more and check out the show notes at TheMentorsRadio.com. That's TheMentorsRadio.com. And now, here's your mentor. Welcome. I'm your host, Dan Hesse. Today's guest mentor is Steve Case, who co-founded AOL in 1985. Under Steve's leadership as CEO, AOL became the largest and most valuable internet company, driving the worldwide adoption of a medium that has transformed business and society. He's currently chairman and CEO of Revolution LLC, a Washington, D.C.-based investment firm that backs entrepreneurs at every stage of their development. The Rise of the Rest Seed Fund has invested in more than 200 startups in over 100 U.S. cities in partnership with many of America's most successful entrepreneurs and investors. He was recently named co-chair of the National Advisory Council for Innovation and Entrepreneurship, which will advise on the development of a national entrepreneurship strategy to ensure America's competitiveness. He is also the best-selling author of books Rise of the Rest, How Entrepreneurs in Surprising Places Are Building the New American Dream, and The Third Wave, an Entrepreneur's Vision of the Future. Welcome, Steve. It's a real privilege to have you. Great to be with you, Dan. So um, you grew up in Hawaii and then came stateside for college. Then I think you went to work for PNG, then Pizza Hut. You ended up at Quantum Computer Science, I believe, which was the predecessor company to AOL. Tell us how the idea for AOL came about. Well, back then when we started in 1985, as, as you know, and you'll remember, but maybe many of your listeners won't know or won't remember, <laughs> uh, the internet was still more of a science fiction idea. When we started in 85, only 3% of people were online, and those 3% were online an average of just one hour a week. So it really was early days. And so the idea of AOL was to really you know, get the world online, get America online, get figure out ways to make the services easier to use, more useful, more fun, more affordable. So it really would create a mass market for uh, for the internet. And and you know, it took me a little while to, to you know, some of the background in terms of you know, college in, in Massachusetts and Procter & Gamble in Ohio, and then Pizza Hut in Kansas, then moving to the DC area of Virginia to eventually you know, co-found America Online. Those five or six years, I was actually intrigued with the idea of the internet. I was intrigued with the idea of interactive services, interactive TV, a bunch of other things, but couldn't quite figure out a way to break in. So I was doing these other jobs kind of to learn some skills while I tried to figure out some way to get into this world of of what we now think of as the internet. So entrepreneurs are generally you know, very visionary and as a result, optimistic. When you launched it, did you have a vision for AOL becoming as successful and as large as it became? Uh, not really. I, I had uh, a big belief in the idea of the internet and thought it would be eventually ubiquitous and, and change the world. Uh, for AOL itself, we struggled to raise capital. We raised a total of $1 million of venture capital to get started. Uh, we had some big uh, competitors. General Electric had a service called you know, Genie. H&R Block had a service called you know, CompuServe. 
Uh, AT&T was doing some things. There was a joint venture called Prodigy with IBM and Sears and CPS. They committed $1 billion to launch Prodigy. We only had $1 million to launch AOL. Mm -hmm. So we were kind of the little guys and, and you know, kind of had to hustle. You know, let us establish a lot of partnerships because we knew we couldn't do it on our own. So we needed to partner, particularly back then with uh, personal computer manufacturers to get our software bundled in. We focused on services like community, couldn't afford to buy content. So we figured we'd create it. And that's where the big, big uh, focus of, 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 of AOL. Uh, so as I think back on it, uh, I, I always believed in the idea of the internet, always hoped that AOL would survive and then thrive. Uh, but certainly when we first got started, it was just about getting getting onto the playing field. And we had like many startups, you know, so you know, a little bit of a, a roller coaster ride in the in the first five years or so. There were a couple of times we had to go through layoffs and retrench and and you know, there were some scary moments, but eventually we broke through. In retrospect, though, when I think back of that journey, um, I'm surprised it took so long for the internet to take off. It really mm -hmm. was 10 years from you know this from you from uh, some of your 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 jobs in the communications world. When we started in 85, essentially nobody knew or cared about the internet. It really took 10 years before it became something that had mainstream appeal in the, in the mid 90s. And, and so it was a long, slow you know, slog for that first decade. And then finally, we hit a tipping point and things really accelerated in the second decade. And I learned from that lesson, you know, the importance of perseverance. It was would have been easy to give up. Even some of my you know, folks that, you know, my parents, and others were encouraging me to kind of get a real job, time, time to move on. But we believed in the idea, we believed in the team, we believed in, in creating this medium, and, and eventually, thankfully, we were able to break through. Now, you mentioned content, because I remember back then, AOL created and had a lot of its own content because the internet wasn't what it is today, because for especially our younger um, listeners who think of their internet service provider maybe as Cox or Comcast or T-Mobile, they're really just connections to this you know, enormous amount of information that's available out there on the internet, but really with you as a pioneer, you know, you almost at the beginning were more like an online service with your own content because there just wasn't that much interesting out there for people to go get on the internet. Well, and even what we, as you say, you're exactly right. When we started, uh, we essentially had to do everything ourselves, content, community, you know, commerce, connectivity. We were the on-ramp to the internet as well as a suite of services to use once, once, once you got there. But in the first few years, it was still, and people find this odd, but but it was true. The internet, when we launched, was still restricted to government agencies and educational institutions. So it was not yet open to consumers or businesses. Congress had to pass the Telecom Act to essentially commercialize ac the access to the internet, which I think was 1989, 90, something like that. So for the first few years, we had to do everything on our own. Once the internet was commercialized, we were able to build an on-ramp to the internet as an extension. So we had a whole suite of services that were exclusive to AOL, as well as obviously full access to all of the internet. So you wrote a book, The Third Wave, and you described kind of the three waves of the internet. Kind of simplify, I think the first wave was just building out the infrastructure, which you'd put AOL really in. The second wave, it was building kind of service platforms, social media platforms on top of the internet, the Googles and the Facebooks. And the third wave, starting in roughly 2016, where the internet really becomes integrated into our daily lives. You know, since you wrote the book, you know, roughly eight years ago, has the third wave kind of gone according to plan or have you been surprised by anything? No, it's, 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 it's really has. I think the internet's now met the real world and really every sector 
is being reimagined because of of the internet things like healthcare and education and even you know food and agriculture you know financial services you know kind of everything is now on the table in the, in the first wave it really was more about kind of reimagining communications the second wave a lot of around reimagining you know content and in and, and community you know, the third wave is really kind of every aspect of our lives every sector of, of of the economy and now with the addition also of ai you're seeing an acceleration on on that front as well so yeah, you know, part of the reason I wrote the book is I thought some of the lessons from those early days of the internet might be helpful. Uh, I, I, one key theme of the book is the importance of partnerships. I mentioned how they were critical in getting AOL going. I think they're critical in these in these sectors now that are up for grabs. Healthcare, for example, requires systems level innovation, systems level integration. It's not just writing software. It's how you get you know doctors and nurses to use it, and in, in, in hospitals integrate it, and health plans to pay for it, and regulators to allow it. Otherwise, your technology doesn't matter more. So that partnership act aspect was important. I think policy is becoming important again. The early days of the internet, I mentioned it was still even illegal for the internet to to you know for consumers and businesses to access the internet. You had to change policy to do that. To, you know the Judge Green broke up the you know, mobile phone company, which created a lot of competition in communication services. As as you know, there was a big policy aspect in those early days. There's a big policy aspect now because of the importance of, of the internet, the importance of AI, the importance of sectors like healthcare and some of these other things we've, we've talked about. And the final one really is, 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 re is recognizing that in addition to partnerships, in addition to policy, these are hard challenges. You're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna change the world overnight. Revolutions often happen in more evolutionary ways. And and so being able to, you know, kind of persevere is gonna be important as well. Those were some of the themes I wrote about eight years ago, and they're they're definitely playing out. Like big big companies that are tackling some of these sectors now recognize partnerships matter, recognize more that policy matters, and recognize more that perseverance matters. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, Steve Case. Go to our website, TheMentorsRadio.com, and click on List of Shows to listen to past guests. This is Dan Hesse, and you are listening to The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with AOL co-founder Steve Case. Remember, you can also listen to this show or any previous show via podcast on Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, iHeart, or Stitcher on any device at any time. So in the third wave, Steve, I think you predicted that innovation would spread across the country. But you know, now we look back, we still have the dominance of investment. I think you said in your, your, your newest book, about 75% of, of early investor dollars go into Silicon Valley, New York. Massachusetts. You've invested with your firm Revolution about a billion dollars. As you look at kind of the business model for it, is this because there's less competition? You get better valuations with other money that's looking to invest in these companies? Do you do it as a duty to country? All of the above, none of the above. What's really the, the concept of Revolution? No, I think all of the above. As you said, you know, the vast majority of venture capital is going to a few people in a few places. As a result, there's a lot of job creation, economic vitality in those places and many other parts of the country there's not. And there's indeed a, a brain drain where people leave the middle of the country to go to the coast, places like Silicon Valley, because that's really the land of opportunity. And I think that's something we need to address the country. And, and, and if we don't address it, the divide we have in our country is only going to get worse. So there is that broader 
theme, sort of that broader you know, passion. But then we couple that with an investment strategy that we believe is a little contrarian, but that's how you make money in investments. Everybody's doing the same thing. It's hard to, hard to you know, generate kind of great returns. And we do believe while it takes more time to identify the promising companies in these, what we call rise of the rest cities all around the country, places like Ohio and Michigan and Colorado and, and, and Texas and Georgia and so place where we're, we're making these investments. Uh, if you identify you know, these great companies led by great entrepreneurs, evaluations do tend to be lower at the early stage. And, and so you can generate you know, great, uh, great investment returns. So thankfully it's both, it's that we can, generate returns for our investors. We have outside investors in, in, in all our funds while also having this, this broader, you know, kind of purpose to it that really helps certainly motivate me and, and, and motivate our team to try to do what we can to level the playing field in terms of opportunity in America and make sure that everybody who has an idea has a shot at building a company, kind of a shot at the, at the American dream. And we can do that through the prism of an investment strategy uh, that by backing these companies early and riding them till they're successful, either go public or get acquired, uh, have the potential to generate great returns. So unlike CEOs jetting into Davos, I understand you do kind of the John Madden-like bus tour, typically like five cities in five days. What do you do on the bus and who's on the bus? I mean, do you sing songs or what have you to kill time? And then... <laughs> You know, when you arrive in a city, what would be your typical itinerary? Well, first, a little bit of a backstory. We started these bus tours almost 10 years ago uh, now, and it really came out of, I was asked by uh, uh, then President Obama to lead an, an effort called Startup America, which really was about you know, original entrepreneurship. And I also worked a little bit on the policy uh, front, uh, including working with Congress to pass some legislation just about 10 years ago called the Jobs Act, Jumpstarting Our Business Startups Act. So uh, there was some philanthropy involved. There was some policy involved. Uh, but 10 years ago, we decided to you know, hit the road and and with these Rise of the Rest bus tours and and really prove that they're great entrepreneurs that that justify investment from from uh, venture capitalists. And our, our we didn't know what we're getting into when we did the first tour. Our the, you know, first stops included places like Detroit and Pittsburgh and Cincinnati and Nashville. Uh, and Detroit was an interesting one to pick because, you know, there's a, a storied history to Detroit. A hundred years ago, in many ways, it was kind of like the Silicon Valley of its time, but it fallen on halt hard times. A year before we rolled in with our bus, actually, the city of Detroit had gone bankrupt. And we decided we wanted to start there to really tell the story of Detroit's past, but also a renewed story about potentially Detroit's future. And so we gathered uh, other venture capitalists from uh, both in the area as well as around the country. Uh, we brought uh, people, mayors, governors, you know, senators, sort of the policy you know, folks to also engage. We asked CEOs of larger companies in the case of Detroit, for example, some of the, the auto company uh, to, to all engage. And we traveled around, you know, the city, just seeing what was happening and learning about what's uh, what was happening. Dan Gilbert, in particular, was pivotal in Detroit. He had a successful entrepreneur had moved his company, you know, Quicken Loans, down, you know, downtown to to, to revitalize it. And then we left Detroit and went to the next city, Pittsburgh, which was uh, kind of powered the Industrial Revolution a, a century ago. You know, Carnegie Mellon, one of the great universities, was was there. But ten years ago, they were seeing this brain drain of people graduating and then going to New York or Boston or San Francisco, not staying in in Pittsburgh. And so after doing this first tour, we we said that we felt like we had got some traction. We used uh, being on the bus as an opportunity to tell the stories of some entrepreneurs, tell the stories of, of some of these uh, cities and what was happening to kind of revitalize them, rejuvenate them, reimagine them. 
And so we kept going and we ended up doing nearly 50 of these uh, city visits. Uh, and in the, in the process, we also made investments in, in each city, which ultimately led to launching the Rise of the Rest uh, you know, seed fund. And you said in your intro, now we have investments in over 100 different different cities. So it really was a journey across America to see firsthand what's happening all across America, uh, and particularly in terms of what's happening with innovation, entrepreneurship. And it, it did really open our eyes and hopefully open other people's eyes to the fact there really are great entrepreneurs building great companies everywhere. And we need to shift the focus from just a few places like Silicon Valley and, and, and other places on the coast and broaden that focus if we're really gonna back the next generation of entrepreneurs and help unite, at least in some small way, a very divided country. Well, you mentioned Detroit and, and Pittsburgh. I had an opportunity as a member of the business council to visit Detroit and see all that's been done there. It's really amazing. Pittsburgh as well, I, I spend time there because I'm on a board of a company that's, that's, that's headquartered there. Both those cities have good research universities to draw on. You know, in the case of Detroit, you got Michigan, Michigan State, Wayne State, Pittsburgh, you've got Carnegie Mellon and Pitt. How important is a research university to a city's potential? Well, it's very important. It's not critical. There are some 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 cities, including where I'm in Washington, DC, that has some great university, Georgetown and George Mason and you know so forth, but doesn't have the level of research university that that maybe people are used to in, in Silicon Valley because of, of Stanford, or you mentioned you know, Carnegie Mellon in, in terms of, of Pittsburgh. Uh, they're getting better. Virginia Tech is making a big focus on this in partnership with Amazon deciding to locate their second headquarters in, in Northern Virginia. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's important. What's more important though, is when you do have the benefit of one of those great research universities, you're a magnet for talent. People are coming there to get their education, whether it be a, you know, a, a you know, college degree or a PhD or what have you. But then most of them historically have left. So how do you keep those people in place? How do you slow that brain drain of people leaving and indeed create a boomerang of people uh, returning? And that's one of the things we really focused on with, with Rise the Rest and, and also focused on trying to make sure where there isn't a strong research university, there usually are strong companies and in, in that are leaders in a particular sector. And how do you build on that? How do you establish partnerships with those big Fortune 500 companies that can lead to other companies being spawned you know, kind of off that. So for sure, a research university helps. It helps a great deal. But we've now invested in enough cities, including some that don't have leading research universities that are also showing, you know, real momentum in terms of what's going on in their community. So that helps, but also more capital in the community helps, more of a winning that battle for talent helps, and more of a sense of possibility, more of a collaborative community uh, where people really come together to support entrepreneurs helps as well. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, the third wave author, Steve Case. You can listen to our show worldwide on iHeartRadio or on your favorite podcast platform like Apple or Spotify. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with tech visionary Steve Case about entrepreneurship. So, Steve, at each city, I understand when the bus rolls in, you have a pitch contest, and the winner of the pitch contest earns an investment of $100,000. What do you look for in an entrepreneur when you decide whether to invest or not? And what are the three questions you want them to answer? Well, at Revolution, we have several groups. We have the really early stage seed fund, which we're talking about, the Rise of Rest seed fund. 
We also have a somewhat later kind of Series A uh, firm called Revolution Ventures and later still growth fund called Revolution Growth. And so uh, we're investing really at every stage of the entrepreneurial journey. The, the questions you ask obviously are different if it's a the very early seed stage where it's more about the, the idea or at the venture stage where they're in the market, they have got some initial traction, but it's still early days or the growth stage, which is, you know, typically they have a, a real business to start to scale. And the question is really kind of how big is up. But at the earliest stage, particularly when we're doing these pitch competitions around uh, Rise the Rest, you know, it really starts with trying to understand what's the idea? What's the battle that you're trying to fight? What's the mountain you're trying to climb? We have, you have to get captivated by that, you know, that idea, believe it's important, believe it could be a significant business, believe that that the the entrepreneur has a, a theory of the case where that really could end up being uh, you know something uh, significant. So that's number one, just focusing on the big idea. Number two, obviously, is the team, not just the entrepreneur, but we've learned that entrepreneurship is a team sport. And so, what who do they have on their team that provides the, the insights into the industry that are important, and also a, a mix of perspectives that are important: technology, sales, marketing, policy, et cetera. So. You know the team is is, is second, and the third is, is is partnerships. What what ideas do they have? They may not be formed yet, but what are you know partnerships that really could differentiate them in the market and accelerate their growth and kind of de-risk it as an as investment? So, number one is the idea. Number two is the team. Number three are are partnerships, or at least a theory of the case around partnerships to give us confidence that this is this is you know a bet worth making. So you state that you know in your book that nine out of ten startups fail. So if you're earning a good paycheck at a corporate job, but you have this idea and you're thinking about venturing out, what should you really think about? What should you consider? Well, uh, number one, this has changed and, uh, it's in, over the last few decades. Uh, certainly when I was you know, kind of just starting my career in the early 1980s, you know, it was generally viewed as the safe path was to be on the corporate path and to be able to join a company as I did at right out of college, like Procter Gamble, which was a great you know marketing company with global global reach and and you know great training for 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 young people uh, to be on that path was important. You know, similarly, you know, my wife Jean was early on at General Electric GE, which at the time was viewed as it was the most valuable company in the world and had again a, a, a interesting mix of businesses and. And a, and a great training program for uh, for young people. What's happened since? I think people realize that some of those you know, companies aren't so safe after all. That sometimes they get disrupted. Uh, and being on that that path, you know, it, you know, joining a company in your twenties with the idea you're going to retire maybe in your sixties uh, is less likely. Uh, people are likelier to have multiple you know, kind of uh, you know, jobs. In some cases, even multiple careers. So I think that's changed uh, over the last half century or so. So yes, it's risky to be uh, involved with startups, but sometimes it's risky to stay in place and just presume that things are not going to you know, change or, or to potentially be in a really large bureaucratic company where you don't have the ability to really influence the direction and impact the you know the change. As it relates to startups themselves, yes, you know the, the, the statistics in terms of failures are are, are, are significant. Uh, but also, I think it's important to realize you don't necessarily have to have the idea yourself. You don't necessarily have to be the founder. Sometimes we celebrate the founder too much. What founders need are teams that can take those ideas and make them real, kind of put their ideas in motion, put them, you know, kind of in, you know, get them going. And so it may be not starting a your company yourself, but joining a new company that's just emerging or 
even a later stage, you know, company. When with my experience with AOL, the first uh, when we went public in 1992, we've been at it seven years. We had about 200 employees, so all 200 of those people played a real pivotal role in really getting us going. You know, 10 years after that, we'd gone from 200 people to 10,000 people. So it really that's when it really started, you know, scaling. So you, know, you don't necessarily have to start something yourself. You don't necessarily have to join a really early founding team. You also can be part of a of a startup company, a, a successful, fast growing company that leverages your skill sets and you decide to join it a little bit later, maybe a few years after it started. Uh, so I think people should be broader in terms of thinking about their career opportunities. And I think the main thing is to focus on not where the puck is, but where the puck is going. And if you're the current you know, horse you're riding, the current company you're working for, you don't believe is going to be able to be a leader in the future, it likely is better for you to move on. So you mentioned the team, you've mentioned perseverance. Any other key lessons from your experience at AOL that you'd want to pass on to the entrepreneurs who are listening? Well, the team for sure is important. But if you have the right team, you know, working together in the right way, really anything is possible. You don't have the right team or they're not working in the right way. They're not really working well as a team. I, I found that nothing is possible. So certainly that's that's critical. And I also, as I mentioned earlier, find that these big ideas, these change the world ideas, occasionally somebody might get lucky. You know, Mark Zuckerberg having a dorm room startup and then suddenly a year or two later, Facebook is a global phenomenon. Good for him. But that's pretty rare. I think most situations, including AOL, are you know, 10 year in the making overnight sensations, which is why that perseverance you know, aspect is so important. The other two, which I referenced a little bit before, I, I'm a, am a big believer in partnerships. I, I, I believe that you've got to figure out who are who are the companies that can work with you. You can convince them that's in their interest to partner with you that can really accelerate your growth. AOL would not have been successful without partnerships. I mentioned we started with very little capital, just a million dollars. It was the partnerships we formed at our peak. I think we had like 300 partnerships. And the final one, particularly in the third wave, and I think more and more entrepreneurs are, are, are starting to, you know, to, to see this, is being respectful of the role of policy, respectful of the role of, of government. When you're dealing with some of the biggest industries in the world, some of the most important aspects of our lives, how we stay healthy, what we eat, how we learn, how we move around, how we invest, there is going to be a government engaging a part of it. There, you know, we get frustrated by that, and, and certainly some regulations are onerous and, and, and stifle innovation. Uh, but we need to understand that, you know, the government's going to have a seat at the table. You know, entrepreneurs, founders, companies need to be more respectful of that and engage with those policymakers to educate them about what's happening and make sure they're well-informed as they try to figure out what policies are are appropriate. So, yeah, the, you know, the, 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 those are some of the ones I think are important. People for sure, perseverance for sure, partnerships for sure, and policy for sure. Those are the, I think, the the right cocktail for the you know this next wave of innovation. So we mentioned a few cities earlier in this conversation. You know, you visited a lot of them, uh, and I know in your book you mentioned my hometown, Kansas City, and Darcy Howe and the Casey Rise Fund. Yeah. Any other cities uh, that you'd like to mention that you've been impressed with that are really well, doing the right things? There, it, it's not just a few; it's a few dozen, which is actually part of the reason I wrote that book on Rise of the Rest. Most people assume that you know, as we made this you know, journey across the, you know, the country and visited all these different cities and invested in all these cities, that you know one or two would emerge as sort of the next Silicon Valley or the next you know, New York or the next Boston. And the and the and the, you know, the real walk takeaway for us, which is an encouraging thing, I think, for for the country. Is that there are dozens of cities that are that are that are doing this? We've talked about Detroit. We've talked about Pittsburgh. You just mentioned Kansas City, Minneapolis, Denver, you know Nashville, the Chicago. 
Columbus. Usually building on some of the unique expertise, you know, the, some of the legacy industries in, in those particular areas. Detroit, for example, mobility makes sense. Pittsburgh, because it, it did make steel, it's pretty good at making things. A big e expertise at Carnegie Mellon about uh, robotics in places like uh, you know, Salt Lake City, uh, Utah, a lot of expertise around enterprise software. A number of really big companies have, 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 uh, have built up uh, uh, there in Indianapolis, similarly, the success of a company called Exact Target that was acquired by Salesforce has led to several dozen other you know, companies, you know, software companies in, in Indianapolis. So it really is a great thing to see. And, and, and every, every city we've had the opportunity to visit, there's been things happening there, I think bubbling there that gave me hope for that city and, and really hope for the country. We'll be back in a few minutes with Rise of the Rest author Steve Case. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with investor Steve Case about Comeback Cities. So, Steve, one of the kind of impediments to economic growth is what we read about the shortage of STEM graduates, engineers, scientists. There are a lot of highly skilled STEM graduates from around the world who would love to come to the U.S., Many who went to school here, they got their degrees here, but we have kind of a cap on H-1B visas. What's your take on this and what does the country need to do about this and how can this issue, which is controversial, be resolved? Well, it is controversial. I've been involved in this even 10 years ago, testifying in the Senate around immigration reform. Uh, and I continue to push hard. You mentioned in the intro that I'm co-chairing the National Advisory Council on Innovation and Entrepreneurship, and we're working on a national entrepreneurship strategy. And this issue of talent is is a key part of that. I, it, it is worth noting that part of that is doing a better job educating the kids who are born here so they have the skills they need for the you know, future. And then supplementing that, complementing that by being a magnet for talent, trying to get the you know people from all around the world to come to this country. That's been part of the American success story is We've been a, a magnet for talent, and, and uh, nearly half of the technology companies uh, were started by immigrants or children of immigrants. About 40% of the Fortune 500 companies were. So that's part of what's made America so successful, made it the most innovative entrepreneur nation in the world, made, created the leading economy in the world. So instead of you know kind of closing our doors to those people, we need to you know open our doors and make it easy for people who have skills, who want to start companies to to start and scale them here in this country. And, and uh, you know, H-1B is part of that, but there's other aspects to it in terms of winning this, what's now a global battle for talent. And I'm worried that if we don't make some changes soon, that we could lose our lead, we could lose that edge. Uh, and other countries are starting to figure out that that you know, innovation is accelerating and, and uh, that they're trying to build up their own entrepreneurial economies. And they're trying to, as part of that, be you know, kind of welcoming the talent around the, you know, from around the world at a time that we're making it more, more difficult. So yes, it's politically charged. Yes. Right now, particularly as you know, the, the, there's a you know, great concern and understandable concern about what's happening at the border, the Southern border in particular, how do we make sure that people don't come into this country illegally? And that needs to be resolved. But we, in the process of resolving that shouldn't lose sight of the fact that we need to continue uh, to make sure we are you know, welcoming the people that are going to start the companies of the future. They're job makers, not job takers. 
And if we want to create jobs for people all across the country and sectors all across the country, we need entrepreneurs all across the country. And yes, many of those will be homegrown, and we do, you know, but some of them will be coming from other places and better that they come to America and start and scale here as opposed to go to some other country. And instead of we benefiting from those jobs and that economic growth, some other country does. On the subject of policy, you know, AI is, is discussed a lot. There's clearly opportunity with AI, but there's risk with AI. And of course, the government is beginning to get involved. Uh, it seems as though today that AI power is concentrated because of deep pockets are required in just a few companies. And you've pointed out that government intervention could actually exacerbate that issue and and even make it worse if it makes, for example, open source AI more difficult to implement across the industry. What are your thoughts for governing or not governing AI? Well, it is it is tricky. I'm glad that goes back to what I said before. I'm glad some of the innovators in AI are spending time with the policymakers here in Washington, D.C. and in, in Brussels and Europe and other other places. So their people are yeah, educated. They understand you know the, the complexities of, of these emerging technologies. So I applaud that effort uh, because ultimately that will lead to you know, better policy. Uh, and I, I think we the government needs to do something but it can't do too much. That would be onerous. I think Europe right now is is planning some AI policies that are likely going to stifle innovation. But it's also, I think, naive to think that the government should do nothing. As you mentioned, one of the areas I am particularly concerned about, I would hate it if AI resulted in big tech getting bigger and stifling innovation uh, from, from new emerging companies. I'm, I'm, I respect big tech. I respect big companies, you know, Microsoft and Alphabet and, and so forth. But, you know, my heart is with the new companies, the entrepreneurs. So in some ways with small tech. And so I'm always focused on how do you make it easier for people to start and scale? Uh, and in the AI world, there is a risk because of, as you mentioned, the cost of entry uh, to be one of the broader kind of AI platforms. It, it's, it's limited to, you know, the existing incumbents or some very, very large, uh, you know, well-financed, uh, you know, kind of newcoming companies. So I testified in the in the Senate. I mean, that was my main message. That AI has the potential to usher in all kinds of benefits, drive all kinds of uh, economic growth and healthcare in particular. You know, we backed a company focused on AI called Tempest that's doing some really interesting things with a diagnosed cancer and other diseases that can save lives. So, so it's, it's very powerful, but we also have to recognize that there are risks associated with AI, just as there are with every new technology, and essentially make it harder for entrepreneurs to start and scale their own AI companies uh, and just advantage the biggest players. So, Steve, how do you define success? Well, for me personally, I, I, I was lucky enough to have success relatively young. I, we took AOL Public in uh, 1992. Uh, it was the first internet company to go public. I was at the time 33 years old. Um, and uh, so, you know, it had been a decade of, of, uh, of, of challenge and struggle, but eventually we were able to you know, get to the point where we're ready to go public. And so I had that success, if you will, and, and made some money at a relatively young age. So it quickly became apparent to me, at least, that that wasn't really going to be the driver. What was, certainly I was grateful about the, the money I made from AOL, but I was more grateful I had the opportunity to have a, you know, have some impact in the world. You know, how I think about success is not, you know, what what's in a, a bank account, but how you use your your skill set, your platform, your 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 network, you know, whatever opportunities you might have uh, to help other people, help make the you know the world a better place, and that's why I'm 
as passionate now about rise of the rest and leveling playing field in terms of economic opportunities as I was, you know, 30, 40 years ago in terms of the internet and leveling the playing field. Well, I only have one life to live and, and just trying to have the, you know, the kind of purpose and in, impact that can allow you to feel good when you wake up in the morning that you're 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 doing something that's helping other people i think for me is is a key part of uh, of success and certainly i don't take for granted the monetary aspects of success and the, the things that having some you know some capital give you and I, I know most people don't have that and and i i totally get that but i've learned that that at least for me that's really a kind of a starting point We'll be back in a few minutes with author and entrepreneur Steve Case discussing investing in middle America. You'll find all of our show notes and links at TheMentorsRadio.com. For those who listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or on one of the many podcast platforms that carry our show, if you like these conversations, please give us a good review and tell a friend. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now... Back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with AOL founder and tech visionary Steve Case discussing success and happiness. So, Steve, how do you define happiness? Well, I think like a lot of people, it's a, it's a mix of things for me. You know, family is obviously a, a core of that. We have five kids now. Just in the last few years, have our first few grandchildren, four, four grandchildren now. Uh, and being able to spend time with them and kind of look at the world through their eyes, particularly with you know, really young you know, grandkids, I think is important. Friends have also been uh, been important in, in, in spending time with people you've known and, and, and been on the journey with you for for, for many years is, is, is you know, provides happiness. I've always loved to travel and, and, and see the world and, and you know, some of the companies we've backed, investments we've made, companies like Exclusive Resorts, you know, provide a path to to do that, my wife Jean is the the chairman of the National Geographic Society, which has a global footprint. So that also gives us the opportunity to uh, to travel. But also for me, happiness goes back to some of the things we talked about earlier in terms of purpose. Happiness for me is is really having uh, uh, you know an impact in the world, being able to help people in a in a fundamental you know way. Uh, and and that is why uh, I, I I wake up every day trying to figure out. What more can I do to help the rest rise? What more can I do to make sure we have the right policy around entrepreneurship in this country? What can I do to make sure that we are remaining the most innovative entrepreneurial nation in the world, but do it in a more inclusive way that brings more people and more places around uh, for the for the right? Sometimes it's you know hard work. Sometimes it's frustrating, particularly when you're dealing on policy issues with Congress and and so forth. Go back to some of the things we talked about with with immigration, uh, but I still get some. Uh, satisfaction from trying to move the ball forward all contribute at least to me to a, a life worth living and 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 happiness so steve i'm a a student of an advocate for corporate culture as you look at startups are there any kind of common threads you know common kinds of cultures that succeed or is it each company finds its its own well, every company is a little bit different. It depends on the stage. It also depends on the sector. You know, in terms of uh, you know what, what what industry they're 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 focused on. But certainly, there are things that that do you know, are, are pretty common across them. And some of them we talked about in terms of the 
importance of getting the right team, you know, and recruiting the right team with the right skill set, but then making sure they're playing well together as a team. You know, it's, it's, it's certainly many examples, and I've had some of them where you've, you've, you've attracted great athletes, but they didn't play well as, as the team. And I also saw with AOL in those early days, first, you know, five, 10 years, it really was driven by passion. There was a, you know, there was a sense that we were pioneers, we're all in this together. It was hard, it was a struggle. We might not make it, but we were all in it together. Uh, and the, sort of the second you know, decade when things really you know, took off, we went from being a little company to a big company uh, and you know, from sort of being kind of invisible to being a, a major company. We, you know, we did see things kind of break down on the culture front that we were starting to attract more of a mercenary that was there because it was the hot company and there was money to be made and you lost some of that that pioneering uh, spirit. I also realized as companies grew, and I saw, saw some of this in the you know, later stage of AOL, and so I saw a lot of this when AOL and Time Warner merged. It was, which was at the time the largest merger in, in history, and suddenly we went from being this little startup to being part of a company with 90,000 employees, that there's a different mindset in terms of young entrepreneurial companies that are really trying to imagine a new future and usher in a, a new possibility uh, and larger companies that often are more about managing than imagining. They're more about minimizing risk as opposed to maximizing opportunity. Some of that comes with scale. Some of that comes with maturity. Uh, but having a culture that allows you to continue to be agile, continue to lean into the future, even when you are a, a larger company is a real challenge. And you've had more experience with some of the larger companies than, than I have, but I, I've seen that firsthand building that culture about exactly what I just mentioned, not just about how do you get to know, but how do you get to yes? How do you, yes, be, be thoughtful about keeping bad things from happening, but also be thoughtful about in, enabling good things to happen. I think that mindset is important for any company. It's a little easier when it's a smaller, younger company. It's certainly harder when it's a larger, more, more entrenched company. But that's, I've seen firsthand where, where culture plays out and companies that have a good culture because of dynamics and in, in, in terms of as they scale or broader dynamics in the marketplace, lose that edge, lose that, that, that's, uh, that, that culture. Well, Steve, as a Midwesterner, I appreciate what you're doing to bring not only needed financial resources, but just what you're doing to shine a spotlight on our heartland and its possibilities that... I think will bring enormous economic and quality of life benefits that are going to come with our high-tech future to all Americans. To our listeners, please go to TheMentorsRadio.com for show notes and other resources. You can also listen to us on the major podcast platforms like Spotify and Apple and on iHeartRadio Worldwide. Please join us next week for another edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Dan Hesse signing off. Remember, we're never too informed or experienced to stop learning. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.TheMentorsRadio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.